0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Before I introduce my guests, I've been just mentioning, encouraging you that haven't had a chance to do this, to go to Apple iTunes, where you listen to um, the podcast. Those of you that are Apple listeners and leave a review about this podcast, many have been coming in. I really appreciate that. And it connects more with the podcast series. So thank you for all that are doing that. And thank you for our listeners for joining Without you sharing the podcast and listening, and um, it wouldn't work. So you, my guests, ones here, and you, our listeners, are the ones that make this work. We're going to talk about pornography, listeners. We've been talking about that quite a bit. And um, I have another brave young man who's willing to share his um, journey with pornography use and the work he's done to solve this. And um, I just admire his courage. His name is Brian Johnson. He uh, grew up in Boulder City, Nevada, served a mission in Taiwan. He's 23 years old. And I'll read you the email I got from Cameron Staley. He's an early, he's a therapist that was on an early episode. And Cameron, um, who talks about the ACT approach, and we'll talk about this in this podcast, sent me this email. I want to introduce you to Brian, who I've copied on this email. He reached out to me a few months ago and shared his inspiring journey and insights to overcome. struggle with pornography. Brian has a unique perspective as he has participated in addiction recovery programs for pornography, as well as the acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT approach I use in the Life After Pornography program. We've had several conversations where he shared his insights about a more mindful and compassionate approach to the struggle and how that's been helpful, and how that's been helpful. I paraphrase that last a little bit. So um, thanks for being on the podcast, Brian.
1: Absolutely. I'm excited to be here.
0: We said a prayer, and our hope is that Brian's um, be able to share the thoughts in his mind. And we also prayed for you, our listeners, that we will receive inspiration on things that Brian should share that will be specifically helpful for you, so, um, you that are working through pornography or you that are trying to help others put this behind them. And better understand it. Tell us a little bit about just, I guess we're going to get right into it. Just tell us where you want to start. My, my natural question, Brian, was would be to kind of tell our listeners when you first started viewing pornography.
1: Yeah, I think that contact, context is, uh, is essential. And going back, I think I was 11 um, when I first got exposed to pornography and also masturbation. And I mean, as an 11-year-old who's more worried about my score on Guitar Hero rather than mental health, I just noticed that those things felt good. And um, naturally, those became a place to go if um, I needed to feel good. And I think that that habit can develop quickly um, so young. Um, and then, as you get older, I think your values um, and experiences, and you start having more of a conscience. I think all that starts to play into your struggle and um, that dangerous dichotomy of "ooh, I I know these things aren't right. I've been taught that they aren't. Um, they aren't morally right." But on the other end, they feel good. And I think that's a that's a really slippery slope for um, someone who uh like me, and I know like a lot of others don't have a lot of education about this. Um and it it became a a battle I could only fight with myself. And again, like a lot of others, because it's so shameful and stigmatized you don't talk to anyone about it and you naturally withdraw you pull back and when you pull back you engage in that behavior because it's a safe space it feels good and so it's just getting reinforced over and over and over again and i think that's um that's where it started and i mean uh,
0: and that's roughly eight years before your mission, so there's this eight-year period between uh, age 11 and when you served, I assume, at 18, 19-ish. Talk, just keep talking about these years, questions for our listeners like, were you able to solve this at times on your own? Did you involve your parents or priesthood leaders, or did you just kind of keep this to yourself? <laughs>
1: I kept it to myself to answer that first one right off the bat. Um, didn't tell anyone. Kept it a secret, and it, it's been so interesting to reflect on those early years um, in in the healing um, that I've been doing the past uh, year and a half, two years, and those. Early years are just so interesting. I I remember being so hard on myself and setting those classic goals of I'm gonna go like three days or I'm gonna go seven days. Or you set a big one, you're like 30 days, like, or you know, one of the I will never do it again. And 30 minutes later, you're like, oh well, that was a good 30 minutes. Uh I it's it's just so interesting to look back and see all those times. um, The books I read, the articles I would look up, the information I would try and find. Um, And it got to a point where um, I think I was just hopeless. And I realized that nothing I was doing was working. And so I might as well I don't know, just keep engaging in the behavior and not tell anyone. Um, and I think that that was the last two or three years of high school was just writing this monotonous um, pattern of engaging in the behavior and just beating myself up and realizing that I couldn't do anything about it. And then Maybe I'd have like a good day and have a glimmer of connection with someone and that would, um, help me be happy or feel happy. Um, and it's so weird because I wasn't a, I wasn't in the corner in high school. I wasn't always hood over my eyes. I was, I was outgoing and relatively high achieving and um, was still active in a lot of um, sports and the student council. But I had this side of me that I couldn't show. And I think that drove me to this very specific point of anger and frustration and prevented me from telling anyone else about it. I wanted so bad to match the expectations that I'd heard about all the older kids of, Oh, they're amazing. They're going on a mission. Um, there are these worthy young men and I was trying so hard to not go to any of the parties, not do any of the outwardly bad things, get good grades. But on the other side, I was so stressed out about that that I was engaging more in this bad behavior.
0: Did you get suicidal? No. As a way to sort of get out of this trap you were in?
1: I didn't turn to that.
0: Good. Did you stay engaged with the church during this time? And for our listeners, um, Brian's active LDS, deeply committed to church. um, And I just, but talk about this time. Was it, talk about your relationship with the church when you had this going on in your life?
1: I would describe this time in my life is a very blind faith. Um, And I'm very grateful for that. And I'm very blessed um, that there were good church leaders um, in my ward and stake. And it wasn't that they knew what I was going through. It was that they were there for me regardless. Um, And looking back now, they, I know that their opinion wouldn't have changed and they only would have loved me more. Uh, But at that time, none of them knew they were just there. And there were good activities that had the social connecting aspect, um, but also great um, meetings and inspiring um, leaders that really... really encouraged good church activity. And I, for someone who's very hard on myself, I, I was always perfectionist about the church. It was, I'm all in. And if I'm going to be all in, it's, it's a commitment.
0: What did you think God thought of you during these years pre-mission?
1: I felt that he was disappointed. And I felt that with covenants of these promises that were black and white, that I'd failed him so many times that um, a lot of the priesthood ordinances, I would try and be late for church on purpose so I didn't have to pass. Um, I uh, was really worried about uh, my patriarchal blessing and that because I'd messed up only like a few days before that it's he wasn't going to give me a patriarchal blessing or say, Oh, you're not worthy to receive this or that it wouldn't be as good because I wasn't <laughs> ready for it or worthy. And I think the worthiness word was so heavy. Um, and that played a, that played a big role. Um, all through high school and then on the mission and after the mission as I've been trying to really figure this out.
0: What, what do you think God thought of you now, knowing what you know about God in your journey? What do you think he thought about you and what do you think he wants you to hear your teenage self?
1: It's so funny. I think he was saying all those things to me. I just didn't listen. What things? I love you for who you are and your worth is set in stone. Your worth is as eternal as I am and it's not predicated on imperfect human behavior. If it was, (laughs) we'd all be done for. And knowing that now actually knowing that, not just hearing that. Um, knowing that now has, has been a very powerful mental shift and even deeper than mental, it's, it's a soul-changing conversion as we would use the word. And, and it's been very powerful to know that.
0: It's a great answer. Talk to parents that might think their teenage son, their 12-year-old son is you and has a challenge with pornography and masturbation. Isn't, and they want to be able for that son or daughter to be able to open up to them. Um, just talk to parents of teenage kids that just want their kids to talk to them if it, and to create an environment where they'll open up.
1: I love that last phrase you mentioned right there. And uh, Dr. Staley and I have talked about this very specific question of parents asking, how do I talk to my kids about pornography? Um, How would they want us to go about it? And we came to the conclusion that it's more of a question of how can parents create the environment and the relationship that kids feel comfortable coming to their parents with their struggles and that connection, that trust alone um, will foster such a great environment for healing. And I think that's so much more powerful because in my experience, especially in those high school years, Pornography and masturbation as a behavior wasn't that damaging to my life. It was the consequences of who I thought I was because I engaged in that behavior. And I didn't connect with, I shut every connection out. Um, Even high school, during my mission, after my mission, it was, I got artful at one-sided connection where you'd ask, which doesn't exist, spoiler alert, of being able to tactfully respond to how are you with a response that would either shut down the conversation or put it entirely on them and focus on them and how they're doing. And that was damaging.
0: It's very ins- yeah. I just think as parents, we've got to create an environment where we're talking about pornography and we're talking in, in just factual ways about it. And we're, and so our kids will open up. I, uh, we weren't perfect at this in our family, but I think I would go back and start talking to kids younger. You're 11. That's I didn't realize that when I had eleven year olds this is could be part of their journey or even younger. we've had younger guests talk about this going on at eight and nine, and I just have a factual discussion with kids about what pornography is what masturbation is um that we are love for you, just like you talked about heavenly parents love is unconditional we will walk with you we you know we don't expect you to be perfect, but we want and we we want you to know what our values are we We, you know, don't want our kids looking at pornography, but if that's part of your journey and part of your experience and part of mortality, and we all are imperfect, we want to be there with you and we won't, you know, our love for you is unconditional. We just want to walk with you and help you and create an environment where we open to us about everything that's going on in your life because we're on your team. We're on Team Brian. Um, That's kind of what I would do as a parent going back. And I think that's what you're saying. What? I want to take you to the priest quorum now. <laughs> um, you've got all the you've got priests listening and teachers and deacons. Talk to that group right now. If you were giving the priest lesson about pornography, what would you teach them? And you, this is for, you know I do get some messages saying you've got to quit talking about pornography as a male issue because there are women that are working through pornography and you're creating almost more shame because you're sort of talking just to men about this and not women and the women feel more shame. So I'm aware of that issue. Um, and so, yeah, it's like you talking to also the young women, but it may be since you're a guy, easier to talk to the guys, but go ahead.
1: I'm here for all of it. Good. I, I would, I would put such a high priority on connecting with them. And letting them know that if you struggle with this behavior or not, you're okay, and it it does not define you um, and I think going back to that earlier um, question of with the parents, I think there's a responsibility for education from Teachers or leaders or parents um, to have those conversations, connecting conversations, not confrontational conversations that are educating about what pornography is, what entails um, pornography, and what masturbation is. Because I will tell you that I didn't know. And the high school or middle school, Locker room is not great sex ed. Um, The word on the street is not good sex ed. Um, Think of how valuable and sacred those concepts are, especially um, within our faith. And do you want your child to be learning those on the street? Or do you want to have those meaningful conversations? And it's not just one talk. It's multiple conversations over months and years of how sacred these things are. And there's no shame in talking about them. Um, and, and I would hope to emphasize that with a priest group or a youth group and saying that, yeah, our, these things are, are sacred, but we can talk about them and we should talk about them. And explaining what pornography means um, in and out of the church, and uh, saying that it's it's natural to have the feelings you're having of being attracted to pornographic images, whether that be gay pornography or straight pornography. Um, And having feelings and urges within your body, those are totally natural. And I think the stigma and shame uh, that can start to come with religious implications is I didn't even feel like I was allowed to have sexual urges or feelings or my emotions around that were so intense that it made the problem 10 times worse and and just letting them know that it's it's okay and you're loved and we love you i love you uh, is is so powerful cuz anyone who struggles with this craves connection and I, I can you can say that for just about anyone right that we're we're craving connection and um Th- that's what I would emphasize.
0: It's really th- very thoughtful. And I just think we have to learn how to have these discussions, you know, with our teenagers. And we need to learn to have them at church and in our home. I think sometimes as parents, I said, well, that's the bishop's job to talk to my son or daughter about masturbation and pornography. And maybe that's a little easier for a bishop to talk to sons about those things than, um, but I, And I think sometimes the bishops probably think, well, I don't know if I really want to get in that space, um, teach sex ed to young men and young women. I think maybe the parents should do that. And so I've thought how to sort of solve that. And I thought I've never been a homeward bishop. but I thought, you know, I might do a parent meeting where we just talk as a parent's of all those that have teenagers, say, how are we going to talk about this in our ward? What do you want me to do? What do you want to do as parents? We've got to teach about pornography. We've got to teach about masturbation. And we've got to teach that these kids, just like you correctly said, are sexual beings and will have natural sexual urges. And we should sort of de-stigmatize and decriminalize that and actually recognize that that's part of how God has created our youth. And if you take the shame out of that, I think to your point, you end up having better behavior because you're not just feeling like you're a terrible person for having urges. I don't know the answer there, but I think communication between the bishop and the parents is key in kind of setting, okay, this is kind of what we're going to do then. And if you as parents don't feel good about that, then I won't do that. But if if you parents are on board and I'm on board, I'll, I'll, I as the bishop will start to ask you know, start to go to young men's and young women's and teach these concepts. Um, But perhaps you don't want me to do that. You want to do it at home. And so I just, I think sometimes we just don't teach this stuff. I have shared this a little bit. It's just as you're being vulnerable. I was a 14 or 15 year old kid without a masturbation problem and had wet dreams, which I think is pretty normal. And I didn't know what masturbation was. The bishop asked me if I had a problem with masturbation. And I said, yes. I just had wet dreams. And it wasn't until a few years later that I realized the difference between a wet dream and masturbation. And you're kind of cringing and laughing. And I think it's great, but I just point that out as just missed chance for education. And I should have had the tools as a 13, 14, 15 year old kid to understand the difference between those two things. And just someone, and I have great parents and great leaders, but they just didn't want to go in that space with me. They taught me the birds and the bees, they taught me how babies are created, but there's a lot of other information around there that just was left to whatever, the junior high locker room for me to fill in the gaps. More thoughts on any of that?
1: I just hope, I know these words are going to come back to bite me, right? Because I'm, I'm not a parent right now. I'm not in any leadership roles where I'm necessarily responsible for teaching these principles or having these conversations specifically. Um, And I do give parents a lot of credit um, because it's, it is, these are big things, um, but they don't need to be scary. And I love what you said. And I, I hope that it's more encouraging and that you, there's this understanding that these can be very connecting conversations and actually build your relationship, whether that's parent to child or boyfriend to girlfriend or spouse to spouse. These conversations about sexuality can be very connecting and intimate.
0: I like that. And just one other thought to parents, and I don't want to take over the podcast, is I would, these are all go back things at our home. Our youngest is 19 now. We have six kids, four boys. So I'm kind of, out of raising teenagers anyway. And I think I'd probably have more conversations sort of, you know, explaining pornography, and masturbation, but saying, you know, I'm not going to ask you every month about this. I don't want to make our relationship just about, you know, sin and are you sinning or not? But I think I'd say these are, these, I just teach, you know, the doctrine of our church and teach this concept. And then I'd say maybe, you know, I'm just, I'm just glad to help you um, as much as you want to talk about You may not want to talk about this again, um, but if you mess up, don't feel like I'm disappointing you. And just, I did the doors always open. I sometimes didn't like the PPIs that we used to do, fatherly interviews. And I just felt I put my kids on the spot in an unnatural way. And those for me came better when it was just a natural conversation outdoors or driving or in very unstructured ways. But I think I would even not always turn those into repentance questions. It's a little bit how that worked in my fam, my life as I sort of said, well, how are you doing on keeping the commandments and that PPI? And I'd probably just say, you know, I'm just available for you to help you. Just the door is always open. You know the rules of the church and our family. And, and I'm just, I don't expect you to be perfect all the time. And I just, but I wouldn't want to just, define my relationship with my sons or daughters about keeping the commandments. I And I'm the policeman or their gatekeeper. I'm more of their mentor and more of their cheerleader and more of just someone walking with them in a safe way. Talk about, did you talk to anybody before your mission about this?
1: I talked to my bishop right uh, as I was applying to be a missionary because I was so worried I couldn't go. And I am eternally grateful for that experience. I've I've heard horror stories of um, very scary bishops interviews where they don't respond as lovingly and connecting as uh, I was blessed to have. Um, and I, I do remember just being absolutely frightened uh, as I opened that door and sat in those, very stereotypical church chairs and waited for the bishop to open the door. And it probably took me 15 minutes to get the word pornography out of my mouth. Um, And
0: what was his response that made you feel that it was a good experience?
1: It's funny because at first I was a little upset at his response.
0: His response wasn't, It was almost too calm
1: and too loving. I had been dealing with this for seven, eight years, and I expected punishment. I expected to not be worthy to serve a mission. And he just said, I love you. And this is natural. A lot of people struggle with this. And he helped me to not feel alone like I'd felt for the past seven years about this. Wow. And I think that in in all of this, that's what should be strived for, I think, is this connection and true healing that can come from that. And I remember just talking to him um, about a little bit about the behavior and how it wasn't, It wasn't taking over my life, um, even though mentally I was allocating a lot of time to thinking about it and trying to stop. And I think that was validating to my wanting to be better and wanting to repent. And we had a good relationship already. And he'd seen my work in school and other activities. And so. I I was very blessed and I'm still blessed to be in communication with him and um, be lifelong friends and I I think that's also validating to the power that those relationships can have when you're that vulnerable and he validated that vulnerability.
0: Yeah, I just think when people open up Vulnerably, that's the most tender moment in a parent experience or a local leader experience is what we do. And I think we have to train ourselves as how we respond in advance when a child or a friend or if we're in a priesthood leader's position opens up. We used to do that in YSA Bishop training meetings. We'd actually kind of talk without getting confidential with anybody's situation, just how to teach ourselves how to respond. Even if we were hearing stuff that was... I don't know what the right verb is. If I'm not very good at verbs, adjectives, you know, I mean, it was kind of unusual or dramatic or sort of something um, we hadn't thought of or dealt with before and, and just tried to do anything to take shame. You know, I would consistently say, cause I think it's doc, it's true. My respect for you just went up a couple notches. That's a line that came to me several times in my visits with YSAs and And in their, what they thought were their darkest, most, you know, when they were sharing the deepest, darkest, most painful stuff that they'd kept in, it's true. It's not just a made-up word. It's not a made-up phrase. I'm tender-hearted when I think of some of the courage that people have to open up because it's the path to healing. And um, talk about. I want to get to, because we haven't really talked about, we kind of talked about you've got this problem, quote unquote, and we haven't really gotten to (laughs) you what you've done to put this behind you. So wherever you want to pick up, because you've learned a lot post-mission. And like most return missionaries, I assume this behavior came back into your life. But talk wherever you want to go next, Brian.
1: Okay, yeah, I'll try and and get to the solution part of things. Uh, I do think it's important. uh, As a missionary, I, I did struggle with this as well. Uh, and it was scary for me. We, I was so excited to be a missionary, um, because your agency's, well, I was excited for a lot of reasons, um, in in a very positive way, but also, um, I, I figured that the pornography struggle would go away because I didn't have access to that technology. And my agency was restricted in terms of what I could access. And I was busy all the time and with a companion 24 seven. Um, but then the mission announced we were going to get smartphones like a year in and I was petrified. I was the last one to set up my phone and, um, the behavior came back on the mission as well. Um, and looking back now, I can see, obviously I was stressed out of my mind and so worried about the expectations that it it made sense. Um, and then coming back home, I, I was also, uh, Excited to start my life and just uh, go to school and do everything right. And within a week, I was back in it, and it it does come back with a vengeance. And I think there's a lot that plays into that, and this new environment and stress of being home and the daunting fear of the unknown of oh wow now my purpose isn't laid out for me every day. Uh, I've got to act for myself and make all these decisions. And it's, pornography is easily accessible. I'm back with a phone and there's no filters and right back in it. And so there were a lot of experiences, a lot of experiences over the next um, year of being home that, that really impacted and brought me to a place where I realized drastic measures needed to be taken. Um, and so I, I was engaged and uh, I I brought up pornography and I'm um, thankful for her and her response. Um, she was very understanding and loving. And I give a lot of props for that. I don't think a lot of people are educated on this to begin with, let alone on how to help those who struggle with this. And so I was very impressed um, with that initial response, but ultimately it caused a disconnect and a chasm and the engagement was broken off and I hit a very low rock bottom of, I need help. And, um, realized that the church had an addiction recovery program and naturally I resorted to the thought that I was an addict that I had this problem that no matter what I did I couldn't get rid of it this was now a decade of struggle and I've tried the books I've tried the filters I've tried throwing my iPad off a cliff to get rid of the temptation which didn't work Tried everything, nothing worked. Did and you
0: really throw your iPad off a cliff?
1: I did. There's, there's just
0: a, tell us where this iPad is. Yeah, right I was now. Gonna,
1: there's a free iPad up at a Bootleg Canyon. All on, right, on there the you mountain. Go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just hit a very, very low bottom, and um, remember, was so ashamed that I was in Provo at the time, and I decided that I was going to attend this, uh, the church's addiction recovery program, and. Oh, it took everything in my power to open my car door, drive the right direction, open the church door, walk in. I don't know why they put so many doors in the churches, but four sets of doors to get into the room and then sit there and realize that there were 20 other men. And I had to leave Provo. Again, I was so ashamed that I had to drive 20 minutes south and go to one in a different place. And that there's a lot I can talk about in the um, healing of the ARP program. I think the most important thing for me was the connection of that group setting of realizing that I wasn't alone and there were 20 plus other guys in there who struggle with the same thing I struggle with and were talking about it and it took away that shame and that was huge for me and game-changing. But over months and months, I noticed I was happier and okay talking about it, but my behavior wasn't changing. Um, I was still engaging in uh, viewing pornography and masturbating, and I I couldn't figure out why. Why I I was doing all these steps. I was doing the readings I was praying I was being accountable I was making the moral inventory and it wasn't working and um so eventually when covid hit I they cut the meetings um for a few weeks and then brought them back virtual but I didn't I didn't keep going and fast forward um a few months sorry I feel like I just covered a lot of ground I uh I was actually uh, dating this girl, and she, I told her about um, my struggle with pornography and was very vulnerable and she handled it very well. And was even looking up some resources of what to do to help. And I uh, found this podcast, uh, Mormon Marriages Podcast with Dr. Cameron Staley. And I tell you, I listened to that and I was in the car and it changed everything. It was like everything he said, I'd known deep down somewhere, but he just kept bringing things to light of, you know what, you've tried all these things, um, but nothing's working. Maybe that's because you're trying to solve the wrong problem. You're trying to solve the symptom and not the not the internal issue and pornography isn't a sexual concern. It's an emotional concern and all these things. And I was, I right there. I got home. I looked up all his resources, started watching videos. I signed up for this, the life after pornography program and immediately just immersed myself in this, um, in this new perspective in this new program and it is without a doubt the best thing that happened to me and specifically in this healing process and going a little more into that it's been amazing to see my progress not only mental health wise and my my view of my worth and my connections and my relationships with others, but also my behavior and realizing that as I've gone through these modules in the life after pornography program and implementing the principles that my behavior has changed and I no longer struggle with pornography. Wow. Wow. I do still struggle with emotions and that doesn't make me a bad person. It makes me human. And it's how we decide to cope with those emotions and how we struggle with those emotions that is is the important piece and that's where we can implement our values and choose to be mindful rather than turning to pornography. And that's In large part, what this program is based on is a very mindful approach um, to coping with these emotions and urges that are totally okay to have, and creating a space for you to accept that these things are natural and to choose not to act on those urges or those emotions. And seeing the benefit that that has played in solving. Such a bigger part of my life than I thought pornography was um, has been absolutely amazing.
0: You said some really wonderful things. And I wish I had heard this kind of a podcast before my YSA assignment, before I was a father of of any kids. Talk about connection. You've used that word a lot. Just talk about talk more about that word. <laughs> It's hard to
1: talk about. <laughs> um, I.
0: Sorry, it's not hard to talk about. It's tearing up. From ages
1: 11 to 22, I don't think anyone actually knew
0: me. Not one person. Um,
1: But to finally have a mentality where I'm okay with myself and to trust uh, being vulnerable and letting people in and connecting with them has been the most beautiful addition to my life. I went from cutting everyone out. I went from mission companions coming up to me after the mission saying, we lived together for six months and I still have no idea who you are. Um, I went from being in relationships where it was, they said it was like dating a stranger sometimes to now every single friend I have, I can have vulnerable conversations with I can connect with and granted there's appropriate boundaries and um, uh, levels to work through naturally but I feel like I'm a human again I I feel like I can connect to people and and that's what this is a big part of this has come to and I completely disagree with pornography. I I do not think it's morally right. But I would stress so much more the consequences of someone who struggles with pornography and naturally withdraws. I think that is the dangerous part. And I cannot emphasize enough how powerful it has been to connect with people. And I think personally, I feed off that. And I'm sure that goes for a lot of other people. And that alone has been the core driver behind my, I would say recovery. It has some addiction language to it but my healing my progress
0: I have a, it's a great segment um your lack of wanting to let others in throughout your mission and your teenage years was that directly related to pornography was that and if you it was just a way that you didn't want let you didn't want people to know this about you, you didn't want people in
1: yeah, it, it was expectations-based. I think if if they... I was trying so hard to outwardly appear like this person, and if I let them in, they would see differently. They would see that I struggled with this thing that has been so shameful
0: that they wouldn't accept me. It's so well-articulated. It's so exhausting. And it's It's a cultural thing. It's a society thing. There's a lot of tongues of that in our culture a culture of perfect obedience, exact obedience, perfection. We need to be that as missionaries. And I, Cameron and I, I'm sorry, I'm calling you Cameron now. Brian and I both agree with the principle of obedience and the blessings, but you've, we've got to create a culture where we can be what you're describing and have an authentic connection and vulnerability because that's how we heal. And that's how we come together to help each other as saints to move forward. And it takes great courage to do what you're doing. I hope people realize the power of what Brian said when he said, and I'm paraphrasing this isn't a sexual I can't remember the next word you use this is an emotional concern concern um and that to me is sort of what I gradually learned is the iceberg principle that I've shared is that if I'm working with somebody or even in my own life, the things I'm trying to change, like you know whatever. That's often what's above the iceberg, but sometimes I need to set that off to the side and sort of do what Brian has done with the help of Cameron and the will of the Heavenly Father and the Atonement is to get to the bottom of that iceberg. And I think once you got there, you saw correctly that this is an emotional coping mechanism, like eating, <laughs> like whatever we do, over-exercising, perhaps. There's, and all those aren't sinful, but it's a coping mechanism. And I think when you put it in that category, then you're able to find the path to healing. And that to me just resonated, listeners, because as I'm in my YSA, assignment, the very best people I knew were working just like Brian's working to solve this. And I just didn't feel at the core of them was somebody who said, okay, what can I do to turn against God? And change my future destiny. Okay, this is what I'll do. I just sent somebody that's doing everything they knew how to put this behind them. And the tools that I had at the time and the things that they were doing most were not successful. It's one of the biggest surprises of my assignment is this is the lack of success we had in getting the YSAs to solve porn. And I think it's because we I think it's because we as leaders. <laughs> And our culture didn't have the right tools. And that's why I'm so grateful for um, the work that those of you that are talking about this and the work of people like Cameron and others. I want you to talk about um, the addictive language you're not using. So we have used addictive language um, and you have used very different terms. And Cameron used those in his podcast. And I encourage our listeners to check out his podcast that he did with us at 345 and we'll list We'll link in the podcast description to Cameron's work, um, the Life After Pornography program. So I want to make sure, as you've talked about it, that our listeners can go to this description and go right to Cameron's podcast series. But go ahead.
1: Yeah. It, it, it's been enlightening to realize how powerful the language can be. And a large part of the shame and stigma um, around pornography comes from that, that language and it being so powerful. Um, Addiction language specifically is dangerous because it, it it gives you something to blame. And I'm an agent of agency. And I agree with that on a very personal level and also
0: a faith-based level of we are... Um,
1: we are given decisions, and there's opposition in all things, and it's up to us to act. Um, and the addiction approach has a very specific way of letting you blame your behavior on an addiction um, and a mental dependency. And Cameron has done a lot of work on um, the the research, the science side of things and and looking at how effective the addiction model really is. And I'm I'm hesitant to go all in confidence on a statement like this, but the um in the conversations we've had, it's it's been very much the addiction approach is mainly helpful simply because it brings you into that group setting. The approach itself is not the most effective way to treat behavior, um, and this act approach um, is different. And it gets rid of all that language—not the the relapse, the recovery, the actual addiction itself. Um, that's it's it's dangerous terminology because saying that you're an addict is putting you in quicksand. It's why it's defining you. And the acceptance and commitment therapy approach is all about you defining you, not your addiction. And it's taking your values and using those to create the life that you want. And that that principle alone right there in that sentence is, is something I want to live by. I, I don't want the hopelessness of the addiction model. I can see why it was nice to say, hi, I'm Brian. I'm an addict. This is why I'm this way. This is why I am stuck in this behavior. But now to say, hi, I'm Brian. And Brian's all you need to know. 'Cause that's me and get to know me. I'm excited to get to know you. Like I, I have struggles like everyone else, but I'm they don't define me. I love that approach. Naturally, that it, it's it's personal, it's individualized, and and you you can define yourself. And that's what we're on earth to do.
0: I really like that. And I think addiction can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, too. I think if we take that label on, I found a lot of the people that called themselves addicted to pornography could go long periods of time without pornography use. And often the times they reported to me that they did the best is back to connection. This was a hole in their heart, a hole in their soul that they were filling with. They needed connection um, because of stress, anxiety humans are wired for connection. We're fundamentally social beings. And so we need connection. And, you know, loneliness, stress, anxiety, it's a coping mechanism. So I learned that a lot of YSAs, they just get in a situation where they had much better connection and they just go, Bishop, I I just realized I'd messed up for, and they'd go the state, the period of time would often be longer than they'd ever gone before. And That was fascinating for me because some of the things that I was giving them, kind of a toolbox, typical suggestion, were not the path to healing, even though they're important things. You're shifting gears on you. You are single, Brian. You're going to marry a woman one day, and you've told me before we went live how you're handling this, but she will likely listen to this podcast before you are engaged, and you will... I think from what you told me before, you will talk about this part of your life um, early enough in the dating process that she understands this about you. It may not be the first date. Um, a lot of guys are terrified of that conversation, and women are terrified if they have pornography use of that conversation too. Why would you talk so publicly, and why would you talk to your, the women you're dating about this? <sighs>
1: I think those are two different questions, but also, also one and the same. Like we've talked about, um, during this whole podcast, communication is connecting and validating vulnerability is powerful. And I realize not everyone has to get on a podcast and talk about their struggle with pornography. It's It's up to you. Um, But I think if you are in a relationship um, and if you're, whether you're just dating or you've been married, it it is scary. Um, And I think that's because there is so much shame um, around uh, this specific struggle But I I hope that there's going to be a push for education on both sides of of this dilemma of the one who struggles and the one who supports. And by doing so, it'll create this beautiful environment where people can open up and there's an appropriate response that is nothing but loving. And it doesn't mean your relationship has, doesn't mean you're going to get married. But it also doesn't mean your relationship has to end right there. Um, again, pornography does not define someone. And it's, Cameron and I have talked about this. Ironically, it's people who are trying so hard to be good and really working on keeping the commandments and very adamant about that exact obedience that are the ones struggling with this. And I would ask anyone um, if you are supporting the person that struggles to to actually look at them to see them for who they
0: are because they are a child of God
1: and worth exactly that, and they're beautiful and they have talents and gifts and amazing attributes, I would ask anyone who struggles with this to actually look at themselves to get a better mirror, an accurate mirror. And that's what acceptance commitment therapy in this approach is. And actually see yourself for who you are and who your values align with what you want to be. And once we open those lines of communication and understanding and acceptance, these conversations aren't going to be scary and they aren't going to be damaging. They aren't going to be confrontational. They're going to be connecting and beneficial and relationship building and beautiful. And that's why I'm talking right now is to, to help that.
0: It's a really good another great segment. And I'm with Brian on this. I my advice is to do what Brian does. If you have got a current or past pornography use in your life, to open up with your dating partner about that and go by the spirit on when to do that. I think you ought to do that um not necessarily on the first date, but I think you ought to do that before you're engaged. And I think you ought to do that when you're becoming serious. And I think both partners um, you had better language than I have the one that's you know not doesn't have the use. I think that one without the use needs to feel permission to end the relationship if they feel that's the right thing for them. I don't want to create a feeling that you should stay in a relationship with someone with pornography use just to, because that's what we do now in the church. I think you need to seek personal revelation for what's right for you and And But don't go into the relationship with a checklist that I'm never going to marry a guy or never marry a woman that's never had pornography use, um, because I think you may eliminate the very person you're supposed to marry. And you may even recognize that the gifts and attributes and vulnerability that's come into that person's life because of this wrestle actually makes them a better human being and actually makes them a better partner for you and actually makes them a better parent down the road because they've walked this road and can walk your own kids down this road. Just maybe that's the right person for you. I believe this is peaking with Ryan's generation. You're the first generation that's dealt with 24-7 access. And that's obviously, as I'm turning 60 this year, something I didn't deal with at your age, but um, we're wired the same. And I think you have, because you've walked this road, you have the tools now to help other people walk this road. And I think some of your greatest paydays will be your own kids, or if you're in a church assignment or a friend, or right now as you're talking about this, because you have tools and principles that help other people avoid this, or understand it, or manage it, or pull out of it. And so that's why I think it's peaking. I actually have great hope that, um, your children's generation will do better. And so that's just some of my thoughts. Um, I encourage, as I think more like Brian are opening up in the dating process about this and credit to all of you that are opening up to your girlfriends or boyfriends about this. And I think more of you are having a nuanced view of this saying, I'm just going to go slow here as he's vulnerably opened up. And I'm just going to let this sit for a little bit to understand what's the right thing for me now going forward. More thoughts on any of that?
1: I hope that there is hope. I, I love um, the the attention that's bring, being brought to this. And I certainly appreciate it being brought up in a healthy and non-shaming way. And and there's there's ways to do that that are much better than others, and I think talking about it is going to be that essential first step. And programs like uh, Cameron uh, has developed are are great resources and work, and getting those out there is is absolutely essential. And I would recommend it to a friend like I'd recommend a good restaurant. I mean, it's it's foolproof. That's
0: a great testimony of a great program, and I wish you could all see Brian. He's just full of light and goodness and hope, and there's no shame in him. I feel so tender about that word. I wrote an article that's in the October Ensign, Seven Tips for Overcoming Porn. It's the October 2020. It was still called the Ensign back then. But one of the key points is taking shame. I just think shame is Satan's tool to isolate you like you were in your teenage years. So I think Satan wins a little bit when, he caused, when, he, when you mess up. But that's not where the real battle's fought. It's what happens after the mess up. And that's where Satan really wins if he can isolate you in shame and keep you from connection. And keep this just to yourself and put thoughts in your brain. You remember all those thoughts in your teenage years. You shared some of them, but those are dark, hopeless thoughts. And I think that's where Satan wins. And taking this out of the shame world doesn't mean we take it out of the sin world. Um, We're just taking it out of the shame world to talk about it in an appropriate way and to get better tools. And to talk about this as an emotional Um, what's the concern concern i like your that word concern a lot emotion uh, concern and understanding that that's the path to recovery and i think the atonement of jesus christ comes in there because i think it can provide healing and hope and i think the doctrine of loving heavenly parents that love us and that i believe what what brian said is nothing we can do can take them outside of our love outside of their love i said that backwards that's true with our own children. Um, but I think Satan's goal is to separate you from the love of your heavenly parents and put thoughts in your brain. Brian says, okay, I've gone too far now. I'm the only one that's messing up like this. I'm the only one. No one would love me. All those thoughts that came into your brain, that's, Where Satan wins, and that's where we don't live the doctrine that our heavenly parents love us, and they want to walk with us, not just on our best days, but those days when no one feels anybody would want to walk with us. So I think Satan's real and wants to destroy us, but I think he particularly wounds in the shame world. And Brene Brown, this quote I've shared before, is Shame says I am bad versus I did something bad. It's a huge difference. Um so anyway. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share, Brian? And I'm going to, as you're thinking of that, I'm going to read this quote that I read about every fourth podcast. And this is who you are, Brian, and who Cameron is. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. So you know that desert, As a teenager and as a missionary, that last part of your mission and coming home. And now you are leading people out of the desert because you authentically know the desert. And I would even go one step further the principles and the skills and the insights you're learning because of this desert allow you to lead people out of other sister deserts. And I think whoever you marry will understand that about you. Doesn't mean you'll be a perfect husband and you won't be. Forever, you know, but I think she'll get that about you, and I think she'll understand the big picture of your role in her life. And she'll probably be pretty safe being vulnerable with you. And vulnerability brings an authentic connection. But I think she'll also understand that you will have tools to help your future kids because of this personal journey in your life. And you may not fully open up, but you may later on know when to talk about this in your own life, in an appropriate way with your own kids. And I think we're, you'll do a better job of that. I think our age group, we just never opened up about our mistakes because we were just told not to. And I think we had to be the perfect parents. And I've tried to be a little more open with my kids about my own imperfections at their age just to create more safety that they'll open up Is if I'm not perceived as the perfect parent. I think they know I'm not perfect, but sometimes it's good to remind them of that. So now back to you for any final comments. I
1: just want to share hope. I, I hope that no matter where you are in that desert, if it's cold and dark and you can't see anyone else, um, having the tools and resources to accept yourself and to love yourself, because that is a commandment um, from God. And it's given to us for a reason that, We are lovable, and like that shame quote from Brene Brown of the difference between "I am bad" versus "I did something bad." Um, I I still mess up, and I I still love myself.
0: Do you mess up as much as you did before your mission?
1: Not even close. Okay, not even close. And I, I use mess up as a very it's fine. Ambiguous term. That's a uh, good term. I, I just hope that no matter where you are in this process, that that you'll find that connection um, in, in loving yourself. And by doing so, letting your friends in, letting your family in, letting yourself in, letting God in. And... And that connection is, is so powerful and it's a light in the desert and I'm, it's ironic. I'm from the desert. So it just makes sense, right?
0: Boulder city.
1: Yep. Um, But I just, I have so much hope for those who, who have struggled with this and are, are looking to, to get over it because you can. You absolutely can.
0: So I joined Brian in an invitation for those of you that are listening that um, have pornography use, that you act on the impressions that came to you during this podcast. You even could write them down right now. And don't make a big list. I'm not a big list guy because I think it's hard to do lots of things. But I just invite you, the one or two or three impressions that came to your mind, act on those. And um, because I think Heavenly Father will help you on this journey and the things that Brian and Cameron are doing will help you. I almost feel like ending a talk like we end church talks. We're not going to do that. We'll just say, uh, this is Brian Johnson and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.